Let's pray. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we do thank and praise you that your word is true and that even as, as we're looking at it in a slightly different way today, that uh, what we think and uh, what I say will be true and that you help us to understand rightly more of uh, how it is that you save us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As I've been hinting, um, today we start a series of five topical talks. Uh, I've been uh, kind of talked into doing topical talks and uh, generally speaking, um, what, what I like to do is just work through books of the Bible and explain what they mean in their context and so on. So it's a little bit like going for a bushwalk. Just see the stuff as it comes up in, in nature. But sometimes if you, if you really want to study plants or something, you, you need to go to a botanical garden and get all the roses in together and, and all the uh, tulips in together or something like that. You'll see the relevance of that in a second. Um, <clears throat> and, uh, uh, and then you can just see things a bit differently. So what we're going to do, we're taking a topic and not a book of the Bible, and then we'll get lots of bits and pieces from the Bible and pull them together to see what it says about the topic. And so this series, uh, for five weeks, our topic is the biblical teaching on salvation, how and why God saves us. And what we're going to be doing, we're going to be looking at some stuff that was written a few hundred years ago on salvation, and we're going to compare it to what the Bible says. We're going to be doing, okay, you can impress people with this, Anybody ask you what you're doing in church? We're going to be doing historical theology. Okay, see if we can drop that and impress some people. Historical theology. So, so let me start off by taking you back in history. Uh, the year was 1610. The country was Holland. A group of theologians wrote a paper. The paper was called the Remonstrance, uh, the, um, the whinge, okay? the, 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 the protest, all right? something like that. Now, what they were remonstrating against was the teaching of the Dutch church on salvation. They wrote their paper and they asked the government to call a national synod. It's like a, a big meeting of all the churches in Holland. The synod happened in the years 1618 to 1619 in a city called Dort. Okay, you have to be Dutch to say that, Dort. Right. Um, and uh, in Dort, this church meeting, it came up with five teachings about salvation. Five canons, as they were called, five kind of measuring sticks, five teachings, the so-called canons of Dort. And up on the screen there, you'll see I've put the canons. I'll give you just a very brief introduction to what they mean. So, uh, thanks, Mark. The, the, the first one is total depravity. Okay, it's the idea that sin is all-pervasive and means we can't save ourselves. Uh, number two, unconditional election. That is, that God elects to save some people without any reason in the people themselves. Number three, limited atonement. Jesus' death is only intended by God to save the people he has chosen, he has elected. Next one, irresistible grace. When God graciously calls people to trust in Jesus, they do trust in Jesus for salvation. And then the final one, the perseverance of the saints. Those who are truly born again will trust in Jesus to the end and be saved. There they are, the so-called canons of Dort. They show us our need for salvation and they show us from beginning to end how God saves us. If you want a simple way to remember them, you can take the first letter of each and uh, you can see it spells, can you see it there? It's very good for the Dutch people. Tulip. Tulip. Of course, Holland is famous for its tulips, isn't it? Okay, so we turn then to our first canon, total depravity. What this canon does, it deals with the problem of humanity. 
It shows us why we need to be saved. It shows us what we need to be saved from. Now, it's pretty clear that there is a problem with humanity. Just need to look around. People are so clever. People are so smart. People are so creative. We can make and do amazing things. You look at these high-rise buildings around us and so on. We're very, very clever. And yet, at the same time, we are so awful, selfish, terrible to each other, destructive of the world God has given us. Someone famous, didn't get on the internet so I didn't find out what the name was, but somebody famous once described humans, humanity as the glory and the scourge of the universe. When it comes to humanity, there is obviously a problem. That much people can agree on. But when it comes to isolating what the problem is, people are not quite so unanimous. There are lots of ideas out there about what the problem is with humanity, why we make such a mess of things. And many people, they seem to think that our, our fundamental problem is ignorance. They say that if people knew more about life, if they knew more about themselves, if they knew more about each other, if they knew more about the environment, then their behaviour would improve. Or maybe people say, if, if we were given clearer moral guidelines, if we were informed about right and wrong, then our problem would be solved. We'd live in harmony. Other people say, no, it's not so much ignorance. It's more about lack of opportunity. Now, this is certainly the view that underlies uh, Australian politics and Australian political thinking. The idea is that if we could just give everybody opportunity to join in a prosperous society, to participate in a prosperous society, then they'd start behaving themselves. If people had access to money, if they had access to resources, then our problem would be solved, we'd be in harmony. It's very common, isn't it? Other people think that our problem is one of sickness. Uh, evil behaviour, antisocial behaviour, it's some kind of a sickness that needs to be cured. Uh, give people good doctors, give them good counsellors, and then they'll behave. If they misbehave, you rehabilitate them or, or you medicate them. The idea is if people were healthy physically and mentally and emotionally, then, so the thinking goes, humanity's problem would be solved. But that's not what the Council of Dort thought. They didn't think our problem was ignorance. They didn't think our problem was a lack of opportunity. They didn't think our problem was sickness. The Council of Dort said, you know what your problem is? Your problem is that you are totally depraved. <laughs> That's what they said the problem was, total depravity. That we are morally corrupt to the core. That we are wicked in every part. That we are unwilling and unable to be the people God wants us to be and that's why we've made such a mess. What did they mean? Well, on your outline there, can you see I've given a, a definition of total depravity. It's not mine. It comes from a, an American theologian, Professor Robert Raymond, um, in a very large textbook on theology that he wrote. I think it's a very helpful definition in terms of understanding what, uh, what they were trying to get at in the Council of Dort. And uh, it's a very helpful definition for us to work with. So see where it is and we'll keep coming back to it. Let me just read it to start with. Can you see it there? Um, Both because of original sin and their own acts of sin... All mankind, excepting Christ, in their natural state, are thoroughly corrupt and completely evil, though they are restrained from living out their corruptness in its fullness by the instrumentalities of God's common grace. Accordingly, they are completely incapable of saving themselves. 
Okay, it's a bit complicated. Uh, there are a few aspects to the definition. So what I want to do is, is work through this definition bit by bit. And I want to see if each aspect of it matches up with what the Bible says, if it's faithfully teaching what the Bible says. See what we're going to do? Okay, so the first thing to notice there is the idea of original sin. Can you see that? Because of original sin. You know what original sin is? It's, um, it, it's the idea that we have somehow inherited the effects of the first ever human sin, of Adam's sin. It's the idea that because of Adam's sin, we are born as sinners. We aren't born neutral. We aren't born innocent. We're born sinners. We sin because we are born sinners. Okay, is that biblical? Well, certainly Adam's sin is biblical. Uh, Adam rejected God's authority in his life. He, he disobeyed a clear command of God. On your outline there, can you see Genesis 2 and 3? The Lord God commanded the man, that's Adam, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. And then a chapter later, when the woman, Eve, saw that the fruit of the tree, that's the tree they were told not to eat, when she saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, that's Adam, and he ate it. Okay, Adam disobeyed God. He sinned. And the Bible then says that somehow... Because of Adam's sin, we all sinned. When Adam sinned, we all sinned. Somehow when Adam sinned, we were counted as having sinned. That's Romans chapter 5, verse 12. The next one there. Sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all men because, because all sinned. Somehow when he sinned, we all sinned. Now, there are a few ways that people try to think about it. I think the best way to think about it is it's a little bit like Parliament. Okay, when Parliament sits down in Canberra, Camelina and uh, the boys and I went down to Canberra the other day and we, we watched where they sit. Um, when Parliament sits in Canberra, you and I are actually counted as being there. We are there in Parliament. We are there because the representative that we voted for is there. Well, hopefully. Hopefully he's not out having coffee or something like that. Okay? The representative that we voted for is there and so we are counted as being there. His vote, her vote is our vote. It seems that uh, somehow Adam acted as a kind of a representative for us. When he sinned, we were counted as having sinned. The thing is, that then messes us up completely because impacted on by Adam's sin, the Bible says that we are born in a state of sin. Uh, the next verses, uh, King David says, you see the next one? Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Or another psalm, even from, the bir even from birth... The wicked go astray. From the womb they are wayward and speak lies. Okay, do you get the point of original sin? Born sinners. Now, there's an American theologian, John Gerstner, Dr. John Gerstner, and he uh, tells a story of how he was once invited to preach at a vacant Presbyterian church local to him. He was greeted at the door by the elders of the church and they asked him, Dr. Gerstner, would you please do a, a baptism for us? We've got, uh, we need to, need to have a baptism. Dr. Gerstner agreed. And then one of the elders explained to him a special tradition of their church. He asked Dr. Gerstner to present a white rose to the baby's parents before the baptism. Dr. Gerstner said, oh, that's interesting. What's, what's the meaning of the white rose? And the elder said, well, we, we present the white rose as a symbol of the baby's innocence before God. 
Dr. Gerstner looked at him and he thought and he said, he said, I see. He said, well, what then does the water symbolise? Do you see the point? Infants are not innocent. We need to be washed clean by the blood, by the blood of Jesus. We need to be washed clean of sin by Jesus. That's what we symbolise in infant baptism. You're not washing someone who's clean, you're washing someone who's dirty. Uh, we are all born in sin, born to be bad, to quote George Thorogood. Uh, that's what the Bible teaches. We have this original sin. Okay, well in that first sentence of Professor Raymond's definition, can you see it also talks about our own acts of sin. Can you see that it says because of, our, uh, because of original sin and their own acts of sin. Was that biblical? The idea that everyone's got their own acts of sin. The idea that we've all sinned ourselves, that we've all rejected God's authority, we all disobey his commands. Well, again, the answer is yes. Now, the next verse on your outline, from Romans 3, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They've together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Are you getting the point? Okay. Or the next verse from 1 John. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Okay, clear enough? Original sin is biblical. The idea that we have sinned, that everybody has sinned, is biblical. But it's from here that we start to talk about total depravity. Okay? Now this definition, can you see it there? It says that because of original sin and our sin, all mankind, excepting Christ in their natural state, are thoroughly corrupt and completely evil. All right, pretty strong words, don't you reckon? Thoroughly corrupt, completely evil. Is that right? Is that fair to Are people without Jesus really that bad? It's not what most people think, is it? Most people think that we're basically good. It's just we do some bad things. Are we really, in our natural state, thoroughly corrupt and completely evil? Well, let's look at what the Bible says again. We start off with Jesus. Uh, Jesus, he says that sinners aren't just sinners. He says it's like we are sin addicts. We're slaves to sin. Now, the next verse, Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. I don't know if you remember Ray Galea's story about Philip Jensen, but Philip was uh, preaching one time about how everyone is sinful and, and we're, we're sin addicts. We can't stop sinning. And a bloke came up to Philip after the sermon. He said, Philip, that's, that's just nonsense. He said, I could go without sinning. Uh, and Philip said, okay, well, let, let's just pick a sin. Pick, a sin. Pick, pick any sin, all right? And we'll see if you can go without it for one week. And the bloke said, all right, well, I won't tell a lie for one week. Philip said, all right, great. Let, let, let's do that. Go for a whole week without telling a lie and come back and, and see, see how you went. Well, he came back the next week and uh, he was muttering under his breath. And he, he said to Philip, he said, look, that was just completely unfair. I just started a job this week as a real estate agent. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Right? Or, or look at the next verse. And notice here, Jesus doesn't say we're good people who sometimes do bad things. Talking about dads, he says that we're bad dads who sometimes do good things. All right, Luke eleven thirteen. If you then, though you are evil, know how to good gifts, good gifts to your children, and on he goes. 
evil people giving good gifts. Let's head back to the Old Testament. Look at this description of humanity before the great flood. Let's see what God thinks of them. The Lord saw, can you see it there? The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Doesn't sound too good, does it? Well, just in case you thought the flood sorted it out, uh, have a look at what uh, God says after the flood. Never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. Moving through the Old Testament, we see what Jeremiah says about the human heart, about who we are on the inside. He says there, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Let's go back to Jesus, see what he says about our sin. Again, he doesn't say that we sin despite being good on the inside. He says we sin because deep in our hearts we are sinful. We are, the, the fruit that we produce comes because of the trees that we are. All right? He says we are rotten from the inside out and our sin is an expression of who we really are. The next verse. Now Jesus went on, what comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. Well, let's go to Paul. Romans chapter 3, Paul Paul pulls together a whole heap of quotes from the Old Testament. Uh, Quotes that show that every aspect of us is impacted on by sin. Our our throats, our tongues, our lips, our mouths, our feet, our eyes, our knowledge, our ways. The next verses. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. It's a clear picture, but it's not a happy picture, is it? This this picture of man in his natural state, of unsaved man, of man without Jesus. And that is what this doctrine of total depravity is trying to get at. It's showing us that the impact of sin is total. There There is no part of us that is not impacted on by sin. A sin is something that comes from our hearts, from, from who we really are. Sin impacts our thinking, it impacts our emotions, it impacts our will, sin impacts our desires, it impacts our bodies, and more broadly, sin impacts our society and our world. Sin is, sin is all pervasive. It's like putting some drops of ink into a glass of water. It spreads through the whole glass. Every part of the water gets affected. Now, that doesn't mean that we are as bad as we can be. This is not what a theologian would call utter depravity. There's a distinction in theologians' minds. As Jesus said, although we are evil, we are capable of some good at least capable of externally good things. Of course, without faith in God, our motivations will never be what God wants. But, but wicked people can do things that are of themselves good. And, and there's, there's nobody who's as bad as they could possibly be. I mean, even Hitler, Hitler didn't kill his own mum, did he? So People are not as bad as... It's not utter depravity. And if you look at Professor Raymond's definition again, you'll see the same thing. Go back to the definition. And he says there that 
they are restrained from living out their corruptness in its fullness by the instrumentalities of God's common grace. Okay, people don't live as badly as they could, even without Jesus. We're, we're restrained by things like our conscience, by um, the need to live together, by parents, by schools, by peers, by things like government, jails. All right? We're not as bad as we can be. We're stopped from, from expressing the fullness of our badness. But the point is, the point of this doctrine of total depravity, we are bad, without Jesus, we are bad through and through. In our natural state, we are not good people who sometimes do bad things because of the sin that we inherited from Adam and because of our own sin, we were bad people. Okay, that brings us to the last sentence of the definition. Because of sin, we can't save ourselves. You see it there, just the last sentence of that definition of Professor Raymond. Accordingly, they are completely incapable of saving themselves. Okay, our sin is a real problem. It leaves us guilty before God. It leaves us the objects of God's anger. It leaves us facing the judgment of God. The next verse, Romans 1.18 says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. God's anger is coming and there's nothing we can do. We can't save ourselves. Look at the next verse there. Jesus is asked, Who can be saved, Jesus? And look at his answer from Mark chapter 10. It's the rich young ruler, Warren. Mark chapter 10. <laughs> the disciples said to each other, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible. Or Ephesians 2. Paul says, As for you, you were fairly sick in your transgressions and sins. That's not what it says, is it? You were dead in your transgressions and sins. He says, we were by nature objects of wrath. Not sick, not, not even mortally wounded, dead, rigor mortis, defunct, utterly incapacitated in sin. But look at the next verse from Romans 8. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. See the point? We can't save ourselves. It's not just that we're unwilling to please God. We are unable to please him. His anger is coming. Left to ourselves, we are in deep trouble. We need, we need a saviour. We need someone to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. We need someone to rescue us from God's anger. We need someone to, to change us through and through. And the thing is, we were so depraved, we didn't even want a saviour. We couldn't even come to Jesus by ourselves for salvation. Jesus says, can you see it there? No one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. Well, Paul says in Romans 3.11, here's uh, something for your seeker services, there is no one who seeks God. They'll be empty. Okay, so there's your doctrine of total depravity. Feeling happy now? Should we, should we jump up and down and sing a happy, clappy song about you know, walking on sunshine or something? <laughs> What's the doctrine? Without Jesus, I'll give you a song. We are bad of the bone. To quote George Thorogood again, we're bad through and through. We're, we're bad from the heart. Unwilling and unable to be in relationship with God. Now, as I say, 
This is not a popular view. Uh, the blokes who wrote the whinge, the, uh, the remonstrance in 1610, they said that it was a terrible view. They said God must have left us with some capacity to, to obey him and to participate in our salvation. They said surely we can at least choose to rely on Jesus. At least we're left with that. Uh, many modern Christians say similar stuff. It's a very famous pastor from the Crystal Cathedral in the US, Robert Schuller, and he says this. He says, Total depravity are words that, taken literally, are irresponsible, unintelligent and destructive, not redemptive. Furthermore, they are contrived by human theologians and are not scriptural. Now, many Christians disagree with this teaching. And certainly the vast majority of non-Christians out there disagree. You go out there and you ask people, what are people really like? They'll say, well, deep down we're okay. If there's a God, he'll accept us. And, and we can fix our problems as a human race. We just got to, all you need is love, brothers and sisters. Love, love, love. We can fix our problems as a human race because deep down, deep down we're nice people. This doctrine of human depravity, it is not pleasant stuff, is it? And it's not popular. It doesn't appeal to human pride. But the fact is, it is what the Bible teaches. And the fact is, it is very, very important that we understand this doctrine. It's very important because, because as any doctor will tell you, the key to getting a right cure is finding the right, the right diagnosis, isn't it? And so now we can see that, uh, that this is the error with all of those ideas that we saw at the beginning about how to fix humanity's problems. The assumption is that basically good people are, are distorted by external stuff. The idea that basically good people are, are made bad because of their ignorance or, or because of their lack of opportunity or because of their sickness of mind or body. That's why people think education will fix humanity or, or better economic policy will fix humanity or better health care and rehabilitation and medication. But the fact is, none of these things can fix humanity. Now, they're not in themselves bad things, good things, things to strive for, things to pray for, but, but they can't fix the fundamental problem of humanity because they misdiagnose humanity's problem. The Bible is clear. We're not good people who just suffer from ignorance or lack of opportunity or poor health. Left to ourselves, we are rotten to the core, dead in sin. And so, so what we need is not an educator. What we need is not an economist. What we need is not a counsellor or a doctor. Fundamentally, what humanity needs is a saviour. Someone who can rescue us from God's anger. Someone who can transform us into the people God wants us to be. What we need, what we need is Jesus, isn't it? That's why this doctrine of depravity, total depravity, is so important. I'm sad to say that a few weeks ago I lost my, um, my third wedding ring. Um, I don't know if any husbands are quite as bad as me, but uh, that was number three that's disappeared now um, in 16 years. Uh, and so for th this week I've been looking around trying to find a cheap wedding ring. And um, <laughs> what I've got to say, even with the cheap stuff, every single jeweller has the same trick. What they will do is they'll bring out this big black bit of felt, okay? And in the middle of this big black bit of felt, they'll put their little cheapo ring, okay? And the idea is that in the, in the background, 
you'll start to see how beautiful the ring is. You'll start to see how it shines, how it glows, how it... Uh, that's something about what this, uh, what, what this doctrine of total depravity does for us. As unpopular as it may be, it gives us the right diagnosis of our problem. As unpopular as it may be, it, it, it shows us the black background and it is in that background that we can start to see just the beauty of what Jesus has done for us. Friends, here's the point. We're sinful through and through. We need someone to save us through and through. And praise God, that's what he's done through Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we know that your word says God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Lord, we trip over those words. We, we, we think, oh yeah, no big deal. But, but Lord, we were sinners, sinful through and through, totally depraved, thoroughly corrupt, completely evil, and yet you loved us. And at the extraordinary cost of the death of your own son, you did what it takes to cleanse us and make us your people. Our Father, we thank and praise you for your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.